Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We are saying as long as there is breath in our bodies, we will not forget you. If we don't deal with this issue now, the problem will get bigger. The lack of empathy. These women need to get over themselves. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. I swear to God, my heart is not worth it. Since yesterday That match That match That goal Like at the death of normal time I wasn't worth tuppence I nearly fell off the couch Oh my god But we're back in an All-Ireland final For the first time in 8 years That's great news That's marvellous news Not to mind Kelly Harrington Isn't she just the greatest Isn't she just magic 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 what a weekend it's been. Good morning to you. 1850-715-996. Then you're coming in this morning. And you know they say in, in news and broadcasting and talk radio, you're waiting every day for the what did that, what, what moment. What was, did you hear that, Sean? You're waiting for that, right? That moment came in the early morning news when we read that the Department of Education says teachers do not have to be vaccinated when schools reopen. At the end of this month. Not only that, not only that, but we've no right to know whether our children's teachers are vaccinated or not. So I'm listening, I'm thinking of the hundreds, thousands of parents listening to me right now on this Monday morning whose kids will be going back into school in a few weeks' time. And not only does your teacher, your children's teacher, not have to be vaccinated. But you've no right to know whether they're vaccinated or not. That's the bit that bothers me most, i got to tell you. Because some people, well, look, some people cannot be vaccinated. There are medical reasons some people just can't be vaccinated. And that's why we go for herd immunity to protect them. That's one of the reasons. But we've no right to know whether our teachers, our children's teachers, our four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, teachers are vaccinated or not. 
Now, these are the same teachers' unions, by the way, that back at the start of the year were looking to get themselves bumped up the list for vaccination. It's all a bit mad, to be honest. Let's catch up with Professor Anthony Staines uh, from uh, DCU. Anthony, good morning. What do you think of this? They're not obliged to be vaccinated, and we've no right to know whether they're vaccinated or not. I think it's a mistake. Uh, Obviously, there's a set of legal questions there which are outside my area. How does the right to privacy trade off with the right of other people to bodily integrity, in in a nutshell? Mm. But you need to ask somebody else that question. From a, a public health perspective, the challenge for a head teacher is that the head teachers are responsible for the safety of their staff and the students in the school. And without the knowledge as to the vaccination status of a teacher, they can't make intelligent decisions about managing risks. Yeah. It's, it's really, it, it is essential to know is someone at significant risk of getting, getting COVID. Uh, it's not, it is likely, but it's not absolutely certain, but it is likely that being vaccinated reduces your risk of spreading once you have it but it does greatly reduce your risk of getting it and it greatly reduces, obviously, your risk of getting ill. Uh, in the secondary schools, many children will not be vaccinated come uh, the end of August, beginning of September, yeah. although that's, that's, that will change fairly quickly. And we may well have most of the secondary school children vaccinated by the all going well by the end of October. Uh, primary school children at the moment, there is no plan to vaccinate them. There's a lot of work being done. There are studies underway about vaccinating primary school aged children and there are some results of those studies completed and I imagine the regulators will be looking at those studies yeah. in the next while. They're the experts. They, they will make the decision, not people like me. Yeah, but I, I was looking at some of those studies while I was off, just reading them cursorily. You know, we probably will get to the point, I suppose, like you say, where children will be vaccinated or there will be vaccines available for them, but, but we're not there yet. Which in my mind, and I'm just, I'm just a layman, and my, my children have done with school now, but if, if I were a parent of a couple of five, six, seven, eight and nine-year-olds, okay, they're not vaccinated. So surely to protect them and others, their teachers ought to be. I think their teachers should be. I mean, there's serious questions about vaccinating healthcare workers. Healthcare workers are, are required right now to be vaccinated against certain conditions. It's a condition of employment. And that may come in for COVID-19, but it's certainly not there at the moment. Mm. Um, Haven't they done it in the UK where you have to be vaccinated now to work in the care sector? Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that is un, that's being considered here. And I think it's not unreasonable. It's This is a very, very nasty infection. Uh, there are people who are very vulnerable to it, particularly uh, service users in the care sector are highly vulnerable. And it's a substantial challenge providing services to that group of people unless you know your staff vaccination status. Mm. And I know in the care sector, many agencies do know their staff vaccination status. Mm-hmm. And I don't see why teachers and heads and school heads at least shouldn't know that. And no one is suggesting that teachers should go around with plaques saying, I'm vaccinated, I'm not vaccinated. But for the head teacher to actually manage the safety of school students and staff effectively, <laughs> you know, he or she really does does have to know what the situation is. Something would, would also be concerning, Professor, is and in many schools now you'd have children with additional needs 
mainstreamed within the school and some of those needs may be physical so that would make them more vulnerable. You, you don't want those kids in a room with an unvaccinated teacher. Ideally, no. And, you know, there's a range of children with physical and intellectual disability who thankfully are now in mainstream schools, which would not have been the case in the past. They are more vulnerable, sometimes for reasons we understand, sometimes for reasons we really don't understand. But their protection is important. But you can also have a child who appears entirely well, but has a vulnerability you don't know about and who, if they get COVID, will get very, very sick with it. We don't understand why that happens. Most children who get COVID are miserable for a a little while and then get better. It's not a nice illness, but it's not that bad. Uh, A number will will have long-term symptoms. There seems to be some difference of opinion out there now, isn't there, between the experts on on long COVID and, and is it prevalent in children or is it not? There's not an enormous amount of information, but there's two good, big British studies, both of which say similar things. They they say that children who have symptomatic COVID have symptoms which can take months to resolve at about the same rate in one study and a somewhat lower rate in the second study than in adults who have symptomatic COVID. So, it, it, I mean, all this, the science is by no means settled yet, but it, it would be optimistic to say children don't get long-term symptoms. And when we say long COVID, we don't really know how long it will last. Hmm. By analogy with other post-viral syndromes, for most people, it goes away in somewhere between a year and two years. It, uh, so, but for some people, it doesn't. Some people, it lasts much longer than that. Hmm. Isn't there some talk as well at the moment, Anthony, about the whole long COVID scenario in that people are saying, well, for years we've had this thing called post-viral syndrome. And isn't this just the same thing again, but we've given it a new name? Is that a myth? Uh, No, post-viral syndrome is extremely real and quite unpleasant and we don't manage it very well. Long COVID seems to be a slightly different animal in that there seems there seems to be a wider range of symptoms across a wider range of bits of the person. So the, the typical post-viral syndrome is fatigue, which can be very severe, uh, in complete intolerance of exercise mm. and often changes in mood. Long COVID has those features, but it has many other features as well. And we, d- we don't really understand, we don't understand exactly what's going on. I mean, all, most viral infections, to an extent, affect lots of different bits of you. And COVID is no exception. But COVID seems to do damage to lots of different bits of you, maybe mm. in slightly different ways to other viruses. So people think of it as another respiratory virus. It isn't another respiratory virus. Respiratory viruses are as different as giraffes and cows. I mean, they're both herbivores, but there's a lot of <laughs> practical differences between them. Yeah, and this seems to be a multi-systems virus as well once yeah. it gets inside yeah. you. So finally, to come back to the start, Professor Staines, you believe as a public health doctor, and, and that's, as a public health expert, you believe it is unwise to... for. for to have the Department of Education being so liberal 
as I, and that's my word, not anybody else's, liberal with regard to teachers' vaccination. Yeah, I mean, my, my suspicion is many teachers are very responsible, very sensible people, and if they're not vaccinated for some reason, they will tell their, their head teacher. But I, I don't think the department's blanket policy is wise. I think for managing risks in the school, which is the head teacher's responsibility, the department is very clear. They send out directives covering every detail of the operations of the school, but they disclaim all responsibility for anything that goes wrong. Um, it, so they've, they put the responsibility onto the head teacher, and I don't think they can tie the, the, the head teacher's hands behind their back. I don't think that's right. All right, leave it there. Thank you very much, Professor Anthony Staines uh, from Dublin City University. 1850-715-996. Meg's a bit critical that we had Anthony on first in the week of weekend of Kelly Harrington and the weekend of us qualifying for first All-Ireland final in eight years. But we did mention that now, Meg's, to be fair. We did mention that at the very, very start. But that's a big story, I think, for anybody with school-going children this morning. As I said, mine are done with school. Uh, but think of if you have kids this morning, if you've, you're looking at your smallies and your seven, eight, nine, and ten-year-olds who'll be going back into school in the autumn time. Now, your twelve-year-olds plus will be able to get vaccinated. That's that's where we're headed. But the ones from five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, heading back into school in a few weeks' time. The Department of Education has said that their teachers do not have to be vaccinated. Not only that, but there will be no obligation on any teacher to tell the school where they work whether or not they have been vaccinated, which is effectively saying that you, as a parent of small children, do not have a right, in the middle of a pandemic, do not have a right to know whether your children's teacher has been vaccinated against COVID-19. That is what the Department of Education is saying this morning. I wonder what you think. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. See mig.ie. It's time to vote. It's time to vote. In the Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. Go to 96fm.ie. Check out the shortlists for all categories and vote for your favourite. The Best of Cork Awards with localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgot Energy. Only on Cork's 96FM. When your child goes back to school in a few weeks' time, your five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, when your child starts school for the first time in the next few weeks, you don't have any right to know whether their teacher is vaccinated. This is the simple, in a nutshell, of what the Department of Education has said. You don't have a right to know whether your child's teacher is vaccinated when that when your child goes back into their class uh, next month how are you how do you feel with that does that sit okay with you on this monday morning 1850715996 i watched that documentary last week on rt called the eighth uh, the history i guess of the whole uh, battle for change in the eighth amendment uh, in this country and many people afterwards were saying wonderful documentary 
great story, but doesn't tell the full story. And one of the groups is termination for medical reasons. I spotted a tweet from Claire. Claire, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Good. And you're you're a member of termination for medical reasons. And okay. we would have thought those of us who, who who don't have to you know deal with this, we would have thought that that was one of the things that after the referendum would be sorted. Sadly, it's not. No, no, unfortunately it's not. And I think um, it is a shame that the narrative is out there now that we've sort of won, that it's over. But um, for small pockets of us, we're still fighting for our members or for the people that we represent um, who are still travelling and who have been travelling ever since the referendum was passed, since the legislation came in in January 2019 and even all through all through the COVID-19 pandemic, continue to have to travel for terminations to lose their babies. Um, and that's the reality as it stands. Because um, I thought before the referendum, and I remember debating it here on the show with both sides, but we, we placed a lot of emphasis on the termination for medical reasons. I spoke to people with heartbreaking stories. And I thought when it was all passed that though, though, you know, they would be okay now. Yeah, um, well, when the legislation was being proposed and the heads were being drafted and we were told that, you know, this had to be done before the referendum, people needed to know what they were voting on. And we brought up the fact that the, the ground under which terminations for medical reasons would fall, which is Section 11, um, was very overly, was very narrow, it was very prescriptive. So essentially, two doctors in good faith, one of whom must be an obstetrician, have to sign off that they believe that this pregnancy won't survive to term or that if it does, if the baby is born alive, that they will live for less than 28 days. And unfortunately, because of precedent and, you know, it has happened in different jurisdictions under different medical regimes over the years, that you'll always have an outlier. Nobody can predict exactly how long a baby can live. You could have a doctor then say, well, I've heard of a baby with, say, you know, trisomy 13 who lived for six months. Or I know of a baby with this heart condition who lived for 10 months. And that means that those parents then can't get their obstetrician to sign off on that awful, awful circumstance that their baby is going to die. And despite the fact that it is still a fatal condition, they have to travel. And that, I mean, besides that, parents whose condition can't be described as fatal, that might be life-limiting or might be uh, a condition that would cause a lifelong pain or, or suffering or a huge impact on their child, they have no choice under the law. I mean, the baby has to be absolutely 100% guaranteed to pass away within 28 days of birth. And there are so few conditions under which you can absolutely guarantee that, <laughs> that essentially what it means is that there's about four conditions in Ireland under which you can get a termination under Section 11 and everybody else has to travel. So what you're saying to me, Claire, is that the, the heartbreaking stories that I listened to before the referendum are still being told. Yeah, 100%, absolutely. I mean, for us, we got the shock of our lives. We thought that we would be essentially a support group. That's what we assumed we would be turning into once the, the referendum had passed and once the legislation came in. We thought that the advocacy side of our campaign, of our, our group, of our work, would be reduced hugely, that we would just be a support group and maybe advocacy for you know better standards in Ireland and for better perinatal hospital care. And what we found is that it's the opposite. We're still advocating, but unfortunately we don't have the swell of the campaign behind us. We don't have the knowledge and the understanding that I think a lot of people in the country had prior to the referendum. And now we're, we're fighting disinformation 
and also the fact that with COVID it's very hard to even get in front of a politician or get in front of a group of people and explain to them what's happening. We mm. used to be able to do education days in hospitals. Now we have to send a video and hope that they'll play it on their training days. We get occasional meetings, say, with somebody from the National Women and Infants Programme, but it's hard to get a follow-up because obviously they're up the walls with what they're doing as well. But the fact is that with COVID, people are still travelling. People who are vulnerably medical, medically vulnerable themselves have had to travel for termination. People that we know who have travelled for termination have come back with COVID and have had to self-isolate and not even get the support of their family after losing their baby. Um, people have had to isolate from their family, travel alone. One woman travelled alone to the UK and unfortunately her flight home was cancelled and she ended up spending a week in the UK alone oh, no. with a stranger after losing her baby. And then came home to her husband and daughter and, uh, you know, the trauma that she had been through losing the baby alone, but with this added horror on top of it has just really... You know, really impacted on her life, on her marriage, um, and on her relationships. And um, she went back to work because she d- didn't think that people understood what she had been through, didn't know how to explain it. Um, and then, obviously, a month later, had to be signed off. And she's she's not well now. And this is the impact. We're going to see a huge mental health impact from from the pandemic in general, but from people who experience loss and trauma during the pandemic. It's mm. going to be it's going to be a lifelong issue that they carry. And we can change this in Ireland. The, the, the section under which terminations for medical reasons are covered in the law is just not fit for purpose. Yeah. Is there a review of the legislation pending, Cal? Yes, Claire. there is a review. It's written into the law was that there will be a review after three years, and that's coming up this year. Um, so we aren't sure yet what format that review will take place. There's been a lot of confusion over whether it's been started or not yet. We've um, had a beautiful, a lovely human rights lawyer has volunteered to take on our submission to that review and she's written a, be- a really amazing report for us that's been able to articulate it in a legal language um, to show where exactly the law is failing and what points in human rights law internationally it has failed to address. And we are going to be making that submission based on the submissions that our members and that other really generous people have contributed to us on their experience of losing their babies or being diagnosed with a fetal condition. And um, you know the way that when we change the constitution in this mm. country, it, it tends to be a very specific type of change. Are you satisfied or is your legal advisors satisfied that the way we changed the constitution allows for the change in the legislation that would solve the problems your members are facing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. Once we got rid of the Eighth Amendment and we made provision for legislators to enact the law, then we made it capable. They can change the law any way they want. Now, the only thing is, we also have to be aware that our legislators, the people that we vote into the Dole and into the Shannon, could decide that they're going to legislate against abortion in its entirety. You know, that really is up to them now. We have made... We have meant that there's no constitutional ban on abortion now, but that doesn't mean that you can't write a legislation or a legal yeah. ban on abortion. Yeah. So it is still important that when we're voting for people, we think about what way they're going to, start, they're, they feel about these issues, because they can rewrite the law themselves. That's what we vote for them in to do, rewrite and rewrite laws to create legislation. Well, we took the absolute, didn't we? We took the absolute yeah. out of the constitution and we said, right, to our legislators, now do what we pay you to do, legislate. Exactly. Exactly, exactly, and stop dodging this issue as they had been for so many years. And I think what uh, we need to do now is to say again to our public representatives, please make sure that this law, when it is reviewed, is reviewed in a way that means that we're looking at it as a medic, as a legally 
governed medical procedure and make sure that the way it is governed and that the way it is carried out is fit for purpose for the people who need to use it. You know, stop writing legislation for people who are anti-abortion to placate people who will never be happy with what happens in Ireland when abortion is legalised. You have to look at the service users, you have to look at the women who are going into maternity hospitals who are pregnant and who want to end that pregnancy for whatever reason and say, Mm. is this law addressing their concerns? Because there's no point in saying, well, you know, we have to put in a three-day wait because that's what's going to make Simon Coveney happy. And we have to make sure that you you, you have a a 28-day period because that's what's going to make, I don't know, Michael Healy Ray happy. They're not going to be happy if they're an anti-abortion legislator. And that's not who the law is for. That's not who the medical procedure is for. It's for the people who are using it. And they don't often have a voice. They don't know when they go in for a scan that their doctor, if their doctor so chooses, can just lie to them and tell them, no, you can't have that access to abortion in Ireland. Not a, not a consultant here will touch you. They don't understand they don't know what their rights are necessarily because the hospitals and doctors are not handing out a leaflet at the start of people's pregnancy that says, take folic acid, by the way, if something goes wrong with your pregnancy, here's what you're entitled to. They're mm-hmm. walking out the door holding, in some cases, nothing, and in some cases, a piece of paper with our phone number on it. Again, just like they were for all those years prior yeah. to the referendum. And then hoping that we can help them. And, you know, it's not good enough that these vulnerable people are being left in the hands of a volunteer organisation and a charity. You know, um, well, as I say, uh, Claire, a lot of people would have thought that after they cast their vote and the referendum went through, that problems like your members face, that those problems had been solved. I think a lot of people would be shocked to know that it's still only a tiny percentage. Am I right? Well, what we find is that, say, for every... Um, I have a few numbers. I, hate, I know people hate numbers, but about 160 people choose to end their pregnancy every year after a diagnosis of a fetal condition. Since the legislation has gone through, around 100 of those people will be able to have a termination in Ireland and about 60 will travel. That's how it works. So that's, what, 40%. And you want the legislation changed so that they all have the option. Exactly. All right. Exactly. So they will have the option here. When when is the legislation up for review? Do you know, or is it just scheduled for this year? It's scheduled for this year. We don't have any dates yet, but presumably it'll be after the summer recess. Oh, soon so. Soon so. All right, Claire, listen. Thanks. That's Claire Cullen Delsaw from TFMR Ireland. 1857-15996. Just on the back of that documentary last week, which was well worth watching and is on the player if you want to go looking for it. But that was one of the things that people thought would be sorted out by the referendum and by the subsequent legislation. Unfortunately, the situation is that it isn't. 185715996. Just on the vaccination of teachers. And I'm throwing it out there this morning to listeners. I don't know whether it's worth a poll, we'll ever think. So you have small children, maybe someone starting school in September or someone going back to school. And I'm thinking in terms of primary school, because in secondary school, will your children all have access to vaccination or will all have access to vaccination very, very soon? But for small children, for whom we still don't have vaccines, so the babies and the high babies in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth classes, you don't have the right to, according to the Department of Education, you don't have the right to know that your children's teacher is vaccinated. How does that sit with you? So you're sending your children back to a teacher in September, could be the grandest teacher in the world, and I'm sure they are. 
you don't have the right to know. The school doesn't have the right to know whether or not that teacher has been vaccinated. I'm just going to hold off on some of the comments, but that's the question that I'm putting out there. How do you feel about that? How does that sit with you? 185715996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Cork's 96FM and Cork City Council invite you to take an online adventure. Your adventure starts today. Explore many of Cork's beautiful buildings at CorkHeritageOpenDay.ie. On Saturday, August 14th, hear from owners and local historians and learn about Cork's built heritage through interviews, photography, video and archival footage. Click CorkHeritageOpenDay.ie and follow them online for more. Your adventure starts today. Cork Heritage Open Day, August 14th, with Cork City Council, the Heritage Council, the Echo, and Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996. On Cork's 96FM. Right, that's coming in. Uh, we'll let this roll for a little while during the morning. Uh, what the Department of Education has effectively said to us, or uh, said to parents this morning. Bernie says people can't go for a cup of tea in a cafe without proving they're vaccinated but teachers can do what they like with young children at risk. Who is at risk for an unvaccinated teacher in a secondary school? Not the vaccinated students. Well we're talking about primary most mostly here but anyone who chooses not to vaccinate for whatever reason the teacher is not responsible for. Not the principal's business to know who is or who is not vaccinated. How can that professor say long COVID for some can last for longer than two years? The virus hasn't been here for two years. Yeah, but some people who got it in February, March of last year are still sick. That's just a fact. As regards not the principal's visit to know business to know who were his or isn't vaccinated, well, it's the principal's job to manage the school. So you would hope they could know. Kevin, of course, says the irony is you won't know Monday to Friday, but if you just go for a drink after work, then you'll have to provide your cert to have a point. John, just like teachers have a right to say no to getting their, just like parents, sorry John, just like parents have a right to say no to getting their children vaccinated, teachers should have the same right. What happened to my body, my choice? Maybe, but do the parents of those children in the teachers' classes not have the right to know the vaccination status of the teacher? That's the question, because the Department of Education says they don't. Is it just me, PJ, says Paul, now that teachers don't have to be vaccinated or disclose it or not, after all the shouting and roaring their unions had done. Well, I remember covering that at the time. Good debate this morning, but what about the likes of other people dealing with our school children? I'm thinking particularly of school bus drivers, because transport has been highlighted as a risk. Some people say we have a right to decide on vaccination, but we do not have a right not to send our children to school, and we often need transport to make it practical. There are other jobs out there. Tim, but Vax does not prevent one getting or passing on the virus. Are we giving us false sense of security? Public health measures do not equate with personal health. I support the vaccination and I am vaccinated. I'm just worried about a confused narrative between public health and personal health. And Kate says we can't even go for a meal without proving we're vaccinated. How is it different for them? 1850 Your thoughts are welcome. 
your calls also your voice notes if you want to send one to 083 396 96 96 the department of education is effectively telling parents you don't have the right they're but they're, they're, they're dressing it up in nice words but you don't have a right to know whether your child's teacher is vaccinated you don't have that right. We're getting a look at what's in that United Nations report on climate change. It was heavily embargoed until nine o'clock. We're getting a look at its findings and we'll discuss them in a little while. Uh, regarding Europe, it's predicting far more extreme heat waves, far more flooding and very, very bad rain episodes uh, if we do nothing about climate change. And look, as someone who absolutely loves the good weather and loves the bit of summer heat, uh, that's nice on one hand, but we clearly have a serious situation and the United Nations has done a massive study on it. And I'll talk more about that in a wee while. 1850-715-996. The HSE has issued updated guidance on the easing of COVID-19 restrictions in maternity hospitals. Now, again, this is another thing, a bit like the termination for medical reasons that we thought was sorted out because the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, said there's no reason why restrictions couldn't be eased. The Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan, said there's no good public health reason why restrictions can't be eased. And Taoiseach said in the Dáil that he sees no advice before him to suggest that restrictions can't be eased. Now, the various hospitals, there are 19 of them around the country, they all have within themselves the right to do what they see fit. And and that's just a certain amount of self-autonomy. But a lot that we thought had changed has not. We've spoken many times to Linda Kelly. Linda, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Is that an accurate summary that we... The experts now say, look, there's no good reason to continue these The hospitals have their own individual autonomy and it's causing problems. Yeah, it's still, we haven't moved very far, to be honest, from when I was last on speaking with you. We're now in this sort of bizarre situation whereby last week, all on different national uh, radio shows, Paul Reid and Colm Henry made statements that the hospitals had all reported they were compliant with guidelines and that the guidelines had been updated to include the 12-week scan. Uh, and we now know as soon as those statements were made, we knew they were untrue and see UMH even, you know, locally have issued out a memo to staff last Friday, clearly showing that they're not compliant with the guidelines. If you're going to A&E, you still have to attend on your own, which is in contradiction to the guidelines. And if you're in a high-risk antenatal clinic, you're also not allowed to have your partner with you. And that's, again, in contradiction to the guidelines. So it's really adding a huge layer of distress to pregnant people and their families because they're hearing on the radio all of these, you know, lovely statements that the restrictions are ending, people won't be separated. Mm. And they're going well, when they're to being the told, Linda, that there's no health reason, uh, the chief medical officer, there is no public health reason for these restrictions. The Minister for Health, there is, his advice is there's no reason for these restrictions. Taoiseach, there's no reason for these restrictions. Now, the autonomy is there. And does that make it doubly difficult in that one hospital will let you in, another one won't? 
Absolutely, yeah. It's it's very much a postcode lottery, uh, depending on where you are. And I think that's very difficult for people because they're seeing, you know, even just the range of difference in postnatal visits because, you know, in some hospitals it's 45 minutes or it's an hour. In other hospitals it's six or eight hours. And that's a huge difference in the support provided to you after you've had a baby, which is an incredibly vulnerable time. And particularly if you've had a section it's very physically difficult mm. to be able to mind your newborn and so that lack of access for your partner has a really really distressing effect for yeah. people and it's really like as you say at this stage you know we're in a totally different phase of the pandemic now we're talking about having another big speech at the end of the month about reopening everything mm. and you know where 77 percent of the adult population now fully vaccinated yeah, it's huge, you know what I mean? And obviously, look, there is a risk, like there is a risk around uh, pregnant women who are unvaccinated because we know the Delta variant is having an impact on that cohort. But there are also lots of lots of suggestions coming through from public health experts about how to mitigate that risk. And, you know, you have to wonder, the guidelines that the HSE published last week made clear that hospitals shouldn't test partners for COVID or shouldn't use antibiotics testing. How does that make sense if hospitals have a concern about infection control of COVID? It doesn't. You know, it doesn't add up. And I think the HSC have serious questions to answer now about how they're managing this entire situation. Yeah. Dr. Peter McKenna is the Clinical Director of Women and Infant Health at the HSC and he has said that when it comes to guidance, hospitals need to be able to act with their own discretion. So, in other words, we, the government says one thing, the Minister for Health says another thing, the Chief Medical Officer says something, but the hospitals need to be able to make their own decisions at clinical level. Do you accept that? Well, that was always intended to be around if there was an outbreak in the hospital. So, for example, in Tipperary University Hospital at the moment, there is an outbreak of COVID in a general ward of the hospital and they have made temporary um, restrictions on visiting to that hospital. That's appropriate. That's a risk assessment that's been done. That's a temporary situation. Um, You know, that has always been the case and that has always been accepted by everybody involved in this is that we have to provide the service safely. What isn't appropriate is that there is a continuing ban on partner access right across the maternity services without any effort to put in antigen testing, without any effort around COVID testing, without any other efforts around risk assessments Mm. other than keeping partners out. It's not appropriate and we also know now as well that it's proving detrimental to the mental health of people who are using the service. So... As regards the antigen testing for partners, like we know that some of the questions around antigen testing suggest that you know testing yourself with something you buy in Lidl or the local garage is not a hundred percent reliable. But one would have thought that if you're going into a hospital, people are able to test you properly. But even if you consider the situation, PJ, where somebody is going in for a planned section today in CUMH, the woman who is attending for the operation will have a preoperative COVID test. Her partner, who probably typically drove her to the hospital and who will be in the same theatre room for the duration of the operation, doesn't get COVID tested. That doesn't make sense from an infection control point of view. And so you have to wonder, you know, there was a huge investment of money, early doors with COVID around, you know, setting 
setting up porta cabins, setting up additional waiting areas, reconfiguring hospitals. Like, where is that resourcing now for maternity services? Are women not worth that investment in this essential planned healthcare service that runs 365 days of the year? None mm. of it makes sense. And that's the really frustrating part for people right now. Okay, good to catch up again. Thank you, Linda Kelly. Linda Kelly. A maternity rights campaigner, COVID-19 maternity rights campaigner. The, the, the HSE director of clinical director, Dr. McKenna, says that there has to be the ability of a hospital to act with discretion to deal with outbreaks. So that's their side of the story. But everybody else said, well, there's no need for the restrictions anymore. 1850 I have this report in front of me now, and it's going to form the basis of your news bulletins and your newspapers for the rest of the day at least. Just as it published this morning, 200-something climate scientists from around the world have issued this major assessment on the situation with regard to climate change. They say, in the report out this morning, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is was higher in 2019 than at any other time for the past 2 million years. And that global temperatures have increased faster since 1970 than during any other 50-year period in the last 2,000 years. And they tell us that the ice is melting and all of that. And they say that human influence is very likely the main driver of all of this. Human-induced climate change is affecting weather and climate extremes in every region of the globe. In Europe, it says that There's an increase in hot extremes, in heavy precipitation, and in agricultural and ecological droughts. And they have increased steadily since the 50s. And there are projected increases in flooding and droughts, according to the United Nations. That's for Europe, which I assume would include Ireland. Minister for Environment Eamon Ryan has said this morning, doing nothing is not an option. We have to start now, and we're prepared to start Uh, Cahal Nolan, who we regularly speak to from UCC about the weather. Well, climate change is your area of study and expertise, Cahal. What do you make of this report? Anything in it that you didn't expect? Good morning. Well, a very good morning, PJ. I suppose from a climate scientist's perspective, the report this morning is pretty much what we would have expected in terms of the style of the language which is used. We heard the first use of the term unequivocal in terms of the attribution of man's impacts upon the climate and the changes that we've experienced in our climate already, and of course the impacts and changes that we're likely to experience over the coming century. I suppose some of the change, some of the, the wording itself, the fact that it has gone that little bit stronger, it's certainly looking ahead towards the, the COP meeting, which is expected in November. That, of course, will be crucial in terms of the, I suppose, the trajectory that we set forward um, on a, on a global scale in terms of how we go about addressing the challenges which we currently face and we're likely to face as a result mm. of climate change. Like, look, we all love the bit of summer hot weather. We, we all love that and we'd love to get more of it. But at the same time, we also realise it's a symptom of something far more serious. We certainly do. I suppose if you look at that in an Irish context, even the past heat wave that we would have experienced, while in terms of Ireland specifically, we certainly... We feel that we're almost entitled to a good bit of weather every now and again, such as that. But certainly, as you said, it's a symptom of a much larger problem. If you were to continue to see heat waves with the magnitude of that in Ireland over the course of the coming century, that, of course, brings with its own challenges in terms of maybe water security issues, yeah. uh, changes in terms of agricultural as well, 
production when we see conditions like this as you said really is a symptom of something much larger and of course the, the global impacts and even the impacts that we'd like to see in Ireland from issues such as let's say sea level rise over the course of the coming century they would be far outweighed in terms of the benefits that you get from your two or three weeks of good weather during the summer. Now we also know that we've had more and more winter flooding we've had softer wetter winters as it were for the last number of years Yeah, again the odd cold spell that dries things up a bit but colder wetter winters a lot more flooding and if this report is, is to be taken seriously and we must we're in for more flooding. That would seem to be the case, and of course, obviously, talking to regions such as Cork, I mean, no strangers to flooding. In terms of the future, obviously, looking ahead, it's it's a case when we look at Ireland and the impacts that we're likely to experience. That it's a case of, as you said, probably drier, hotter summers with a risk of drought conditions becoming a bit more common. And then in the winter, we're obviously looking at heavier precipitation totals, precipitation totals exceeding what we would have experienced previously and occurring in a shorter period of time as well, leading to an increase then, of course, in flooding conditions. We saw those horrific storms across Belgium and parts of Germany in the wake of our heat wave. They started at the same time. Like, that's mad. And a couple of hours flight away, you, you have that going on. And we're here in Mediterranean heat. That's down to this change as well, isn't it? The attribution studies I think are currently being done with relation to the floods in Germany, certainly all early suggestions would indicate that that is as the consequence of climate change or the con- that climate change certainly would have exacerbated those conditions. Now, one of the main reasons that we experienced those particular floods at the time that we experienced, I suppose, our, our heat wave conditions was due to a buckling in the jet stream itself. The jet stream, of course, dictates the flow I suppose, of weather across the Atlantic. And depending upon where you sit in relation to the jet stream, you can, of course, either have hotter, drier conditions, which yeah. is the case with Ireland, but the buckle then, as you say, if you can imagine, it kind of went up over the UK and then dipped back down, bringing unseasonably, I suppose, cold conditions over some parts of Scandinavia, much yeah. warmer air to the south, and where those two systems clashed, which at that time happened to be across West Germany and across parts of Belgium, the Benelux countries, that's where they experienced those particularly intense downpours. Are we in danger of those extremes here? And I know this, this sounds possibly like a silly question. I hope it doesn't come across as such. Like, could we see the likes of floods in, in Bishopstown, for example? Or more, we had one flood in Douglas but a few years ago. Floods sort of in from the, from the sea. Flood coming in from the sea, specifically, is it? Yeah, or flood, just floods in areas that have never Flood's been flooded before. Uh, absolutely. We certainly are at risk. I mean, if we cast our minds back, I believe it was to only a couple of summers ago, we had particularly intense thunderstorms, which would have fed in from the southeast and certainly affected many parts of the west, West Cork in particular. So if we, we imagine that as a, as a set kind of example of an event, we certainly are prone to these climate extremes as well. It's just a case of, I suppose, to sound ever so slightly dramatic, it's not really a question of, of, of if we will experience these severe floods at different stages. It's really a matter of when, yeah. when you're talking about climate change. Cahal, this is a warning to us. So what is the response? Briefly, what would be our immediate, what needs to be the immediate response of the authorities to this? The immediate response of the authorities, in, in my regards, would seem to be that you need to have a greater level of cooperation on a global scale with regards to addressing the amount of CO2 emissions that are continuously being produced. It's, it's, I suppose it's mind-boggling really to try and grasp the, the magnitude of what really needs to happen in order to reduce the emissions at a level required to be able to address the issues of climate change in a timely manner before we see temperatures exceeding 
2 degrees Celsius. There's talk about keeping global temperatures below 1.5. To me, in my expert opinion, it seems to be unlikely that that will in fact be reached. So what I think you're saying to me very quickly, Cahill, is things are going to get worse before they get better. That would seem to be the case. Okay. I'm going to leave it there for no reason other than time and I've no doubt we'll speak again both on this and on our your extremely accurate weather forecasting. Thank you, Cahill Nolan. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. While I was on my holidays, I got into a, a, a little bit of a spat on Twitter about the fact that I was loving the heatwave so much and I remember saying on Twitter I don't care if it doesn't rain again until September that doesn't mean by the way that I don't see the problem I absolutely love the hot summer weather I do and I love it and I can't, I'm never going to stop loving it but do I realise that it's a symptom of something more serious going on of course I do do I think that I as an individual have the power to do anything about that myself no I don't but we would hope that those who have the power to do something about it will do something about it. Unfortunately, says this comment, in the action of climate change, all our government will do is tax the normal working person for the wrongdoing of big business. And that's a worry that's out there. And it's a worry that's been expressed. And the problem is when you express it, you get called a denier or you get called a minimizer. But that's not the case. The one worry that people have is that we have to change what we're doing. We absolutely have to change what we're doing. We have to change our behaviours because of this problem. But just how much is that going to cost ordinary families is a worry for people. Like the retrofitting of our houses, the changing in boilers and heating systems and all that. That's expensive and grants don't go all the way. In fact, grants don't go half quarter the way sometimes. So that, what, that does worry people. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge something's got to be done. 1850 There's plenty more analysis of that UN report on climate change. But thanks to Cahill Nolan for having a scan across it for us very quickly this morning and looking at the main findings. 1850 Just on the teachers and vaccination, Mar- Margaret says, what about the children who may have health issues like asthma? Some of these children are very, very vulnerable. That's the point that I was saying, Margaret. The summing up of the situation this morning is that the Department of Education has pretty much said to parents of small children, you don't have a right to know whether or not your children's teacher is vaccinated. They have no obligation to tell the school and you don't have a right to know that. And that is the fact. That is what the Department of Education has decided and has said. It's it's dressed it up in different words. It's dressed it up in that teachers will not have to be vaccinated. It's, it's dressed it up in that they won't have to divulge their vaccine status. But what they're actually saying to the parents of Cork and Ireland is you've no right to know whether your children's teacher is vaccinated. Uh, Brian says the Department of Education has obviously taken on board the concerns of many teachers. Do their concerns not matter? Of course they do, Brian. Of course they do. Their concerns absolutely do matter. 
And if a teacher has a very genuine reason for not being vaccinated, and many people, well, not many, but there's a small cohort of the population who medically cannot be vaccinated, that's okay. That we, we all get that. But do you think that your children, you have a right to know whether the person teaching your children has been vaccinated in the middle of a pandemic? I, I, I honestly think you have. Honestly think you have. 1850 Speaking of children, we would often think when you hear the term ADHD, acquired, hyper, acquired, I, 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 ADHD, we would think it is a condition of children. We would think, but it's not. And increasingly, we recognise that it is also a condition of adults. Attention deficit, deficit hyperactivity disorder. Yeah. If it's not written down, I'll forget it, even though it's... Uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. We would have thought it was a, uh, a condition of children. It's not. Nicola Koss, good morning to you. Hello, how are you doing, PJ? Thanks for having me. Yeah. You work for ADHD Ireland, but you were only diagnosed in the last six months as having it yourself. D- did you know that adults could have it? I didn't before I started working with ADHD Ireland. Um, basically, what I was taking in, I, I've always had very creative jobs, so walking straight into ADHD Ireland after working with special needs for a long time, it was kind of easy. Um, I never, I just assumed I was going into an organisation where they were working with kids, they had parent support groups and they had uh, teacher training and I said, right, that's all about uh, kids and ADHD. Absolutely. So, no, I didn't in advance. Um, and the more we got into working and as the team started growing and the awareness, the more it was on the team, obviously, the more we could actually do and the more services we were putting out there. Um, we found that there was uh, more and more adults coming to us. And on a daily basis, you know, where it used to be where we'd have, say, seven or eight calls out of ten would be from parents who are saying, you know, um, I'm going on a waiting list. Teacher thinks that my child might have ADHD. What is it? What do I have to do? How do I go about it? Um, In the last two years or so, more and more adults. So we're now seeing about seven or eight adults ringing us looking for information rather than the parents. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's the child's newly diagnosed and the parents going, well, actually, do you know what? It is a possibility that uh, I seem to have all the traits they have. Um, I had trouble in school and uh, I couldn't hold down a job. Are these things that are to do with ADHD? Um, And they very much are. Where there's huge focus on it these days is in TikTok. Uh, It's uh, the platform, for some reason, TikTok has taken off with regard to ADHD. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of videos out there. So it's, it really is a very big thing. So you were, did, did, did someone say to you, when were you diagnosed, when were you diagnosed? Was it that you realised, I better get checked or what? Yes, funny enough. Um, yeah, it, as I said, kind of, I, I've been working with youth and disabilities for about 15 years. So when I was in ADHD Ireland, I would be working with psychiatrists. I'd be ringing on the phone. I'd be meeting them in person. Um, I'd be meeting people from the HSE, uh, all from obviously ADHD backgrounds and to do with uh, diagnosis and trying to make sure the services are, we can connect with them to make sure our parents can connect with them too. Um, and yeah, over time, you know, I'd be answering the calls uh, and supporting people who ring and say, look, I'm after losing a job. I wasn't able to keep it going. Um, 
and after being, I was an engineer, I flew through school, I flew, flew through college, but uh, I kind of hit a wall when I got into a management role in my job. I wasn't able for the paperwork. You know, there's, there's many walls, more or less is the way we kind of explain it, that people come across um, ADHD. And in my case, it was two or three of the psychiatrists, different times, you know, you'd be sitting talking. And normally if you're in a, a cancer organisation and you're a rep for a cancer organisation, they wouldn't automatically assume you've had cancer. You know, you're just in a job. But in my case, uh, two or three of the psychiatrists at different times kind of tr- jokingly said, so when do you diagnose, Nicola? And I go, ah, ha, ha, everyone has me that. And then over time, it, it got, I'd be answering the phone and supporting people. Um, and there was one guy in particular that uh, he started crying. He was a 33-year-old guy. And he said, Nicola, I've never heard anyone understand me as much the examples you're giving me. It's me. Like, you are getting me. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, I've just never had anyone do that to me before. And then I got off the phone and I started bawling because every example I had used for him were examples I had unknowingly mm. said that were to do with me. So presumably life. you went along and, and you got, I, I, I say, is there a test or an assessment of some kind? And that came assessment. up? Yes, it's normally done over uh, half a morning, might as well say. Um, and the only um, unfortunate thing is that there's, there's very few places that actually do an ADHD diagnosis in Ireland, and that's something we're fighting for. Um, with the HSE, they're bringing out a new um, adult services uh, system, but it's actually at the moment only in Sligo and Limerick. Um, and privately, there's not a lot of uh, psychiatrists out there, but they are on our website, so so they are there. But yes, it's, it's a diagnosis. You go, and it's really good to go in advance to have uh, maybe someone from your family who would remember your childhood and tell remember me, what you were like. When you did get the diagnosis, having been through the assessment, uh, did that explain things to you? It opened up. Now, considering, remembering, I have been working in this area for nearly 15 years and specifically with ADHD for four years. I saw an awful lot of things that had, I suppose, gone wrong, but never really affected me in a massive way. Like simple things like doing your CEO form. I spent more time, and I can remember this now, even though I'm 45, I can remember this now that I spent so much time putting my top five together on my uh, CAO that when I, I had midwifery, midwifery, I had uh, uh, nursing and I'd loads of different things down and I, I spent so much time doing those top five that when I actually got my first choice, I went, yay, I actually got into midwifery. And next minute the thing came back and said horticulture. I put down the wrong number. Crikey. So little things like that all through my life had been happening, but they were never a serious thing. Other adults are coming to us when they're a serious thing, like the relationship is breaking down. They haven't paid the bills. The, the partner thinks that it's just they're lazy. They're not interested. New mammies. It's uh, sometimes they've managed to get all the way through jobs, work in a house, you know, as a housewife, they've you know, managed to pay the bills. But when a new baby comes in, the hormones take over and they can't remember their name. They can't remember to bring the child, let alone the changing back, out shopping. You know, so it affects people in a different way. And in my case, when I started looking at it, you go kind of through, I'd, I'd call it a grieving process because you're looking at all the things that could have happened in a different way and now you know the reason why. Yeah. Um, but it's also the reason why I'm where I am today. Uh, and what do you understand it to be? I mean, it's got a big, long name, attention yeah. deficit hyperactivity disorder. Like in, in your own case, Nicola, what do you understand it to mean? A lack of attention. 
in my case and in most cases. To be honest, in schools, hyperactivity is the one thing that's seen in schools. You know, normally and generally it's boys. Uh, three, there's three girls sitting in a class to one boy, but the boy is normally seen as a hyperactive child. Not saying there's not girls that are hyperactive as well, but earlier in school, teachers see hyperactivity in the kids. They won't sit down, they're forgetting their, their, their books, they're, they're um, jumping around in games, they won't settle down and listen to the rules, um, and they're diagnosed earlier. ADD would be what um, adults, and in a lot of cases, in, in most cases, it's the fact that they were distracted in school, they were forgetting things, uh, not able to organise themselves, not able to plan, um, and that carries through into adulthood. ADD. Diagnosed. ADD. That's, so that's attention deficit. deficit. But then the yeah. HD, but that's, HD a yeah. that's a different thing. That's a different, it's the same thing, except it's without the hyperactivity, and that's normally what we see when the adults are coming through. The adults are coming and they're getting diagnosed with ADD because they were keeping up with their, their schoolwork in school. They weren't causing any trouble. Um, they may forget their PE gear. They may be looking out the window and the teacher on every single report during the years is saying, could do better, not doing enough, is a bit lazy, should be doing more, is so capable of doing more. And that's what a lot of adults come to us tell us. And that's, I got myself in my own reports, exactly that. You know, she could have done better. Um, and I remember in my leaving cert, my teacher <laughs> on her friend, she said, Nicky, you need to go back to pass. And this is the case in a lot of kids. You need to go back to pass. So parents are just putting back down to pass. But I fought with her. And that was my best result. I actually came out with a better result in honours French than where she told me I was going to fail than I did in any other subject. You know, so you can hyper-focus and put your efforts and time into things that you want to do mm. towards what you need. It'd be small things, right? To give you an example of how attention deficit works in a, in a family life I suppose I've managed to rear two kids they're, they're gone to teenage years they've actually managed to survive <laughs> <laughs> not break any bones on my watch anyway um, but the likes of you, you get distracted with the small stuff um, like uh, I would make sure and bring my Dunn's voucher to get my shopping and hyperactivity would come into it in a big way God, I have to get that I have to make sure and bring that and then I go shopping but I forget my shopping list or I am paying 300 a month to Leia and I have never once sent in uh, all the, the bills. I could be owed 500 euros at the end of the year, but I'm too worried about the little voucher instead of the bigger things that cost more money and would be more benefit to my family. So it's things like that. Yeah, yeah. So now that you know that you have it, how do you go about dealing with it? I mean, is there a way to deal with it? There is. Like some people go on, have got to the point where they can't concentrate on their job enough um, or they can't, uh, they're a danger on the road maybe um, because they're, they're, you know, they're so distracted with the radio on their phone and earphones in and everything. And that doesn't work for, for people with ADHD. But um, in most cases, and in my case, I find I have to just organise myself a little bit better. I'm very conscious of the organisation um, part of my life. I'm well able to keep my job. My job, thankfully, is all about creating new activities, coming up with new things for parents or kids or teens. Or, um, it's, it's coming from my creative brain, which makes me able to do my job because ADHD is definitely 100% keeping my job going. Towards in other cases, if I was standing at McDonald's, I'd love the ins and outs of the um, the, fat, the the takeaway, the pill. You're, you're constantly working with orders. You're never standing still. If I was standing over the chip pan and just doing chips all day, I'd have left it because 
you know, impulsively you just say, no, I've had enough, this is born, not enough for me. Mm. And that's the case in, in with most adults. Um, and there's a lot of employers out there don't realise, you know, because somebody's constantly coming in late, it could be that they just forget to put on their alarm. And it's part of their routine. They haven't learned to put on their alarm. Um, and sometimes when we do parent training courses, it's for younger kids and parents of younger kids. And they're learning. And those kids will carry those r- r- routines through their lifetime. But adults who are only finding out they have ADHD are realising that, no, I have never learned how to organise myself. I don't know how to go about cleaning the house. You know, you, you look at a room and you say, the whole place has to be cleaned. You nearly be thinking that it needs painted, when in fact it only needs dusting and hoovering. Yeah. No? Now, it can go terribly wrong for some people too, can't it, Absolutely. Nicola, in that yeah. they, end up, they end up self-medicating? Absolutely, yeah. And that's the unfortunate thing. If you haven't been seen in school, it hasn't, you haven't been diagnosed early, it's normally a case that something, as I was saying earlier, is kind of in my words, is you hit your wall. So it could be somebody moving from sixth class into first year. It's a big transition. That will show up. They go into exam years. It'll show up then because the teachers will say, okay, there's something going on. They're overwhelmed. They're getting really anxious and depressed. And normally that's what brings them and they're the, the symptoms that bring them to a doctor. And if a GP understands ADHD, whether they're 17 or 37, they can sometimes see that, okay, they're after losing three jobs. Um, they're having a hard time with a partner. Um, and uh, they're saying that, you know, they, they're having a hard time, say, with their neighbours or whatever, that he'll say, right, okay, maybe there's something here. They're not able to keep a job. They're, not, they're a bit disorganised. Um, they're not able to keep the routines. So maybe it is ADHD. And that's our biggest job is just trying to get out there to employers and to GPs to understand the presentations of ADHD. And if someone is a bit concerned about themselves or or a loved one listening to our conversation, Nicola, what should they do? They should just contact us. Contact us on ADHD Ireland. Uh, It's info at ADHDireland.ie or give us a buzz on um, 01-874-8349. Uh, Trish is there on the end of the phone I'm normally there as well and we're there to talk you through it doesn't mean the end of the world have ADHD in fact it's a massive massive positive to understand what you have so you yeah. can harness yeah you like when you, when you found out what it was was there was there relief there too there was relief and there was grief if I can explain it yeah. the grief part of it is one big chunk that I wasn't expecting even after talking to everybody who I had been talking to over four years. That came personally to me that I'm sure came to other people, but I never realised that was out there. That was a real thing for me. But when the positive side of it is, you just, you learn to, you know your strengths. And really, the biggest part of it is having a partner who understands um, and trying to explain to the partner and letting them read up about it and understand. Because there's probably a lot of parents out there whose kids have been diagnosed and they've been questioning themselves. Um, and there's also adults out there who are losing jobs or there's employers trying to figure out, you know what, that might be the reason why Johnny's not coming in all the time or he's he's getting very depressed or he's not able to do that final report. It's only one report at the end of the month. Why can't he do it? He just needs a little extra bit of support and that's all it is. It's just there are lots of strategies that can be put in place very, very easily um, and help people, both employers, adults themselves we've got support groups there and we've got training sessions we've just go to our website adhdireland.ie and we have an events page 
Um, and all our ideas are there. All, right, <laughs> all our supports are there. Nicola, it's been great to talk to you. And I, I know that our conversation will probably open a door for many people to say, come here. I, I might just fit that category so they can go and look at info at adhdireland.ie or indeed they can call that number which is 018748349 Nicola Coss from ADHD Ireland working there for four years only realised a few months ago she actually had ADHD herself if, also if you want to find out more about it there is an incredible range of stuff on TikTok particularly it's whatever about TikTok as a platform it picks up on these things and goes wild with them. Go into TikTok and search for ADHD and you'll find loads of it. Absolutely. You may learn something about yourself or about somebody else. 1850 Kate reminds us that Richard Branson has ADHD. In fact many high achievers have ADHD. It's important to manage it but there's no reason to lose out over it. Can we just talk Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Botox Cosmetic, botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. On Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Cork's 96FM is now streaming even more music choice. More music choice. Check out the Hit Mix Online for fresh new music. Keep on dancing like you ain't got a choice. And stream the all-new Fit Mix for your workout. <laughs> Listen on your phone and smart speaker. Turn up the volume. Or go, go, go to 96fm.ie. The Back Garden Festival is back. Cork's 96fm's exclusive online station brings you all the biggest hits from your favorite festival stars. Listen now on our app or go to 96fm.ie. The Back Garden Festival with Harvey Norman and JBL. Your specialist in sound this summer. Cork's 96fm. Going back briefly to our discussion on whether or not 
you have a right to know that your child's teacher is vaccinated, which, by the way, the Department of Education has said that you don't. Uh, Eames says, would you ask the same of childcare workers? I doubt it. If the childcare workers didn't get half a thought when teachers were kicking off, they were just expected to get on with it. Probably the same parents wanting to know the vaccination status of teachers are wanting a communion to go ahead. With regard to the childcare workers, Eames, I believe anybody working with a child, anybody working with a child of any age, unless they medically cannot be vaccinated and they are in that small cohort of society that just can't be, everybody working with a child, everybody working with vulnerable elderly people, anybody working with people needs to be vaccinated. And if that makes me some kind of a crackpot, then fine, I'll wear that badge with pride. Uh, in the UK, they've certain elements of the UK now, particularly the care home sector, where it's no jab, no job. And I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Sorry now, but if you, that pisses people off, then off you go and be pissed off. I don't care. There are certain areas where it's no jab, no job, I'd have to say. 1850-715-996. What does it mean to give your child space? If someone said to you, do you know now you need to give the little ones a little bit of space? What does that actually mean? Does it mean to let them figure themselves out? Or what I'd be inclined to think it means is don't try to make them into a mini-me. Do you know, if they're turning into a mini-you... You're not getting, they're not getting enough space. I wonder, would that be an accurate one? Um, Eileen King Halley has been writing about this on Jumpstart Your Confidence. Would I be, would I be accurate there, Eileen? You know, if they're turning into a mini me or a mini you, you're not giving them enough space. Good morning. Hi, good morning, PJ. How are you? Um, yeah, that's, that's certainly part of it, I suppose. You know, um, I think sometimes we can try and mould them into something that we feel they should be or that we expected them to be. And sometimes that's just the way they are, and that's fine. But I suppose I've worked with so many kids, especially older ones now, maybe heading off to try and decide what they're going to do after school and whatever. And, you know, I just feel, in my experience, there's too many kids trying to please someone else. You know, whether it's sport, whether it's academia, what they're going to do in life, whether it's their personality and controlling it too much, but that they just are too focused on trying to please usually I suppose that parent you know um, which can be really sad because I suppose even as adults maybe a lot of us have realised over the years that maybe we didn't have a whole lot of space either and it might have taken us a long time to get to know ourselves a little bit better mm. um, and I, I suppose in the world we're living in now there's a lot of um, over parenting I'd say sometimes when they're kind of constantly being watched and monitored and uh, every, you know, everything is kind of being done for them. Whereas I think the kids are so incredibly smart and creative and individual and unique. If we do allow them that space, which will mean that they can mess up and they can make mistakes and they will make decisions that maybe aren't the best, but it does give them a chance to understand what works for them and what's right for them mm. rather than us monitoring everything. Yeah, explore that with me a small bit. You, you you feel I think that sometimes they're overparented. What what do you mean by overparented? Well, when they're actually they're so busy because they're being brought everywhere, they have to do ten hundred different activities, which I think unfortunately a lot of us have made that mistake. Um, they're monitored. They're a lot of the time 
parents can answer for kids, they can put words in their mouths, they just don't allow them be. And I think a lot of the time as well, it's like allowing the mistakes to happen and allowing them try new things and allowing them push their boundaries. Not to be not for parents, and it is hard because look, to be fair, all we want to do as parents is do the best for them. But by overparenting them, we do end up with young adults who aren't really capable mm. of living life in a strong, confident way in themselves because they've never had to. Do we have to let them screw up? Absolutely. They always I mean, be there for them, but catch them when they fall, but let them fall. Well, give them the self-belief that they can try. Yeah. You know, I think our job as parents is to give our kids the wings so that they can fly. And I, I suppose a lot of the time in parenting, I think we forget that our role is to ensure that our kids can live confidently and happily without us, as awful as that sounds. But I mean, that's the reality. Our job is to set them up for life so that they're confident and they're capable and they're resilient and they can fend for themselves. I mean, every child has to be able to, at some point in their teens, be able to cook, be able to iron a shirt, be able to put on a wash. And I know that sounds basic, but the amount of kids who can't do that is horrendous. So, I mean, when a lot of these kids go off to college or go off to work somewhere outside of their home, they can really struggle because they're just not able. And that's not their fault, you know. I mean, our job is to make sure that they are resilient and they can pick themselves up and dust themselves down and get on with it and do it again. You know that time in the teenage life from about 13 and a half until maybe just under 18 when they are and it's their job to be an entirely obnoxious pain in the arse from time to time that is their job our job then is isn't it sometimes anyway let them figure themselves out and they will come back to us Absolutely, and I think, I suppose, you know, and again, it's a hard one, PJ, because they can push every button. Oh, dear God almighty, don't I know I raise twins? Jesus. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> oh, God, at no. at the same time, I think what I'd often say to parents is, look, especially at that age now when they go into secondary and they're starting secondary school and then you've all the friendship stuff and everything else that goes with it, that all the, so often when kids react and when they're angry and frustrated and upset, it's nothing to do with us. You know, they have to have a safe place they can let off. They don't actually and, hate you when they tell you they hate you. God, no. And do we? You know, I'd often say to parents, you know, I, I love them. I mightn't always like their behaviour. Yeah. And I'd say the same to kids. Your parents will always love you. They mightn't always like your behaviour, but that love will always be there. And I think it's for us for, as parents, we'd actually stop half the arguments in the house if we just learned, which is difficult, but learned to take a breath and walk away. A lot of those tantrums have nothing to do with us. They're a child who's struggling with something, and whether that's pressure from friends, whether it's pressure from school and academics, whether it's their appearance and they're just struggling and it's a stage of life where that's a very normal behaviour for them and it is difficult on the parents and the home and it can be really troublesome and hard. And you know, it comes back to you. I know I've said this to friends of mine who have teenage kids, you know, and in fairness, it's the Queen Bee. My missus, I got a credit with this. Myself and my daughter, there were times when she was a teenager we couldn't be alone in the same room. Mm-hmm. because we'd fight over something. It could be two flies going up a wall, we'd fight over it. And yeah. the Queen Bee kept saying to me, look, just, just let, her, let, her, let, her, let her off. Back out, back out of it. Back off, back off, back off. You're the yeah. adult, back off. And now, because I listen sometimes, we've got a fabulous relationship. So it comes back to you. Oh, by 100%. But I mean, to be fair to the kids, like, if we keep reacting, we're never going to have a conversation because, no. as you said, it'll be a constant battle. And we are the adults. And I think sometimes, and I know myself, I have four girls, like, and it has hurt, you know, and you do get hurt and you get upset and you're looking at this little person going, oh, my God, who are they? But when we actually 
take a step back and say, you know what, that's really nothing to do with me and let them off and let them have a rent and then when they calm down very often they will end up telling you what was going on. But if we jump in with our reaction, that's gone. Mm. You know, that opportunity is gone. And back to the younger ones then, the six, seven and eight-year-olds, they're on an adventure of their own as well. How do we let them figure that out? Well, I just think, what I suppose when it comes to life within the home, you know, allowing them, well, they all absolutely let them do the age-appropriate jobs in the house. Don't presume they can't because they're five or six. So they're so capable. I mean, there's, there's so many different things these young kids can be doing to help out around the house. And they might moan and groan, but they do sense this capability and this feeling that, they're, that they can and they're able and they're part of the family unit. So I think that's really important. But also, I think, for all the ages, but particularly when they do start, when we start bringing them to activities and sports. And, you know, PJ, I think a lot of us, when, we, when our kids are born, we're like, oh, they'll do this and they'll play that and, you know, it'll be sport or it'll be this yes. or that. And very often that doesn't work because they're individuals <laughs> and they can be very, very different. And it certainly happened to my house where they went absolutely very left. Um, but I often wonder, like, if I look back, say, what my eldest, we used to have her down playing football, soccer, GA, whatever she was involved in, but very often watching her on the GA pitch, there was no football game. She was pirouetting and dancing around the place. And she'd been trying to get us to allow her to do drama and dance. And eventually we did, but both my husband and I were very sporty. We presumed life does not exist without sport. But we did give in and she did start it. And she's finished her degree now in drama and she absolutely adores Brilliant. wherever that road will bring her. But I do look back and wonder if we choose not to allow ourselves to see that because it was going against what we believed, you know, what we thought was important. But they're individual and they're different. And to be honest, I think if we allow our kids to be themselves, they can teach us so much and they can open up new worlds for us that we would never have had the experience. So we have to allow ourselves, you know, to take a breath and say, you know, this child is, she's not me. Mm. I can't, like how many kids... Can't turn them into you. No, and like you'd see kids in a sports field and parents roaring at them because they're not doing well or whatever. I'd love to sometimes put some of those parents on the pitch <laughs> and, and give them a good roar because it's so humiliating and degrading for those kids. Or the kids who are playing, this, I'm only picking sport now because most houses still have some level of sport. But there's some, for some kids, sport is not their thing. And they can go training day after day and they feel less than and they're not being picked in the teams and it's not their gig. And we do need to watch for that. Yeah, we were only talking about that last week actually with regard to dance classes and stuff like that. The dance classes still haven't resumed and for some kids that is their outlet. So you can play hurling but you can't go dancing on a Saturday. Oh, it's horrendous. And it, it has having such a massive effect on so many kids. I think that the, the creative kids have really struggled here because they can't, you know, they're not going to, as you say, they get, their sport isn't back. Their interest and passion isn't back. And even socially that's really difficult for them. And I think the creatives for some reason... They they do struggle because a lot of the time when they're doing drama, dance, whatever, art, whatever it may be, a lot of the time that's not actually recognised in the way it should be, you know, in comparison to someone playing rugby or hockey or whatever it may be. They are judged pretty differently. Yeah. And I, I, I would work with a huge amount of creative kids because and I, I would have found a pattern over the last maybe six, seven, eight years where these creative kids can really struggle a lot of the time they're very, um, they tend to have really actually a very strong sense of self and really strong values about who they are as people. So a lot of the time they don't fit into the, the culture of heading off out of the weekends and yeah. drinking and this and that. And then they feel, what's wrong with me? Yeah. 
Whereas I'm saying like, how lucky are you? You know, yeah. you yeah. have a passion and this is your gig and you don't feel the need to prove yourself in any other way. Yeah. But it can be hard for them in those middle years. And I'd say to parents as a creative kids, do keep an eye on that because it can be hard on them socially because they just don't fit yeah. that norm of what we consider, unfortunately. Eileen, I'll leave it there for today. You have a book, don't you? I have, yeah. I just published a book called The Parents. Um, very practical. It's coming from a lot of the ideas that I get from the kids I work with, which I suppose makes it a little bit different. But it's um, available on my website, jumpstartyourconfidence.com okay. or on my Instagram page. All right. Okay. Cheers and thanks for that and happy to give you an opportunity to mention the book too because you've been working on it for quite some time. That's Eileen Keane Halley. Jumpstart your confidence. Let your children figure themselves out. They'll be grand. They'll be fine. And don't try to turn them into a mini-me or a (laughs) mini-you. One of you is bad enough sometimes. 1850-715-996. Look, I normally don't do these, but I know the person involved and they're very distressed and bothered about it. So I'm doing this. I don't normally, but I am. Uh, Smith's Toys Superstore Conceal Road around Saturday, Saturday afternoon. A woman lost a set of car keys. No sign of them yet. Uh, they've got a Toyota key and about loads of other different keys on them. But a Toyota key on a keyring lost in the vicinity of Smith's Toys in Kinsale Road, Saturday. If anybody can help, uh, give us a message at 1850 715 996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. Rufus Nightjar, our Branwyn Kavanagh, Anamika Bishop and Zoe Basha. They perform live in Levis's Outback tonight at 7pm. It's outdoor seating but very limited tickets, so early booking is advised. Access all areas. Magic Nights by the Lee is a new series of live outdoor music and entertainment events set to take place in Cork City Parks from August 20th to September 4th. The seven free live shows feature artists including the Frank and Walters, John Spillane, Lorraine Nash and Jack O'Rourke. Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play or exhibition coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on side. On Cork's 96FM. Now, a new award scheme uh, this autumn time uh, with the presentation, hopefully, all things going well in terms of COVID at the end of November. It's called... The Pride of Cork Awards 2021. Very proud to say I'll be involved myself at the presentation ceremony, um, along with Miriam O'Callaghan and along with uh, Patricia Messenger of our sister station C103. Delighted and proud to be part of that. But the organisers are Cork Civic Life. And over the last couple of weeks, they have been naming some of the people um, whom they intend to honour on the night. People like Paddy O'Brien... People like Mark Fanta O'Sullivan, hugely popular lad. People like Catherine Mahan Buckley, uh, the Ben Hafaf twins, Paul Byrne from Virgin Media. Uh, the late, the posthumous awards going to the late Tim and Bina Falvey, but also named in there among the recipients is our own Elmarie Maw. Elmarie, good morning to you. 
Hey, PJ. And I, I I'm involved I in the event. And I, knew, I, I think it was the pull of no, you. No, no, I knew nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing about it. I opened up. I opened up the Facebook page of the morning and I saw it. And I goes, "Oh wow, that's brilliant." How do you feel? Oh sure. Honest to goodness, PJ, I don't. I, I don't know what to say because uh, I, I deeply, deeply appreciate it. Of course, I absolutely do. It just feels strange, you know, when you kind of truly don't feel like you've earned something. Um, so it's 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 funny to to to, to get something like this. It's absolutely such an honour. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm. I. I, I <laughs> The Civic Trust say this is for words, and I this, still can't find the words to describe. This is this. for yourself and for Connor, really, <laughs> for the support yeah. for arts and culture during the pandemic. And in the times we've spoken, you told me the arts house has never been busier. Well, that's true. Um, I have to say that it was not just a privilege, but it was a joy. I think to see the incredible creativity and resilience and everything like that from the people in the arts who have been the most um, extraordinary group of people. You know, the first industry to shut down and obviously the last industry to open up fully. And so a lot of people are still out on a limb. But I think what they have done in the course of the whole era since March 2020 has been phenomenal. And we are gradually returning to events, which is superb. Uh, So many gorgeous outdoor concerts still happening. I mean, like yesterday, we couldn't get through the listings in the two hours that we had on air yesterday to go through all of the different events that are still actually out there happening and taking bookings right now. And gradually, bit by bit, indoor events will return again and like that's all superb and I think what we have to do as a not just as a country actually as people no matter what country we're in is acknowledge the kind of trauma that this whole thing has visited on us you know we we all thought it was going to be two weeks then it was a couple of months now here we are over a year and a half later and you know we're still trying to envisage ways of getting back to normality and we may not get back to normality for a good time yet and I think the arts has been tremendous in helping support and express all the emotions that have affected every single person in all of that time and the arts is what is going to help us process in a very gentle way the trauma that we as a human species have been through so it is just a privilege for myself and Connor to be able to have a platform to share the stories that are happening in Cork Connor and myself met in the theatre in Cork we met in the Everman Theatre it's our romantic home and like so it's a shared passion for the two of us and we just adore doing it together and you mentioned trauma and, and, and you've had your own in the last few months and you got, I mentioned this last <laughs> week. There wasn't enough COVID, I did throw on the council. I know. I, oh, we talked during Radiothon and we talked earlier in the oh, year. God. You got the magic news last week. I did, I did. And I was really worried actually going in because, you know, I think anybody who is faced with tests and who goes into the doctor then and the doctor says we have found you don't start treatment the following day you know there is a a period then where they say we found this and now we're going to start tests and you're sent for scans and all sorts of stuff and that process can take weeks and weeks and weeks and in the limbo period I always think of it that way that limbo period between diagnosis and treatment you know I, I 
can't thank people enough for how they keep saying to me, oh, Elmer, you're so positive and you're this and you're that. And I think, you know, I have to be very careful about how I talk about it because I am a default positive person. But I have to be honest and say, nobody is positive all of the time. And like that limbo period between diagnosis and treatment starting. Were you terrified? It's very scary. Oh, listen, I, I would have to say, besides the incredible medical team, doctors, nurses, chemotherapy pay, um, therapists, radiotherapy therapists, everyone around me, one of the most amazing people that helped me in that limbo period especially was my counsellor through Cork Arc Cancer Support House. And yeah, I was scared. I, I mean, I couldn't tell you. I think I cried and cried and cried through every counselling session, you know, uh, before treatment started. And then when treatment starts, you kind of get into a rhythm. The day is governed by your visits to the hospital. You kind of plan the day around what's going to happen and you're gauging how much energy you have to do, bits and pieces and whatever. And once that's up and running, I always found it easier to find the kernel of positivity and look out in it. But I would have to say that it is important to be honest and say that nobody is positive all of the mm. time. And it is scary. It's scary for me. It was scary for Connor. It's scary for your family around you. It's scary for your friends. Everyone, you're the person going through the journey, but everyone also around you on that journey has their own journey. It's a, it's, it's a parallel and different one. Mm. Well, your, so your big, like your big say, family in here was terrified for you. You uh, know that. Well, I know that so many people, though, it was, like, I, I'm, I feel very strange as well about the, the terminology about fighting cancer. I don't know that I necessarily fought cancer. I think that puts a lot of pressure on cancer patients as well to say, oh, Jesus, I don't have the energy today to get out of bed. Do I not have the energy to fight cancer? And then, you know, that adds to anxiety. That is not the way it works at all. You know, so there are days when the bed is the only place you can be. There are days when having a shower is a triumph and then you have to go and lie down. There are days when you can make it downstairs. There are days when you can actually cook for yourself. And there are loads of days when you just can't. And that's when the circle around you takes that burden and allows you then to just rest. And I think I was carried through the whole thing by the swell of people who are around me and and literally brought me brought me through it. I can't tell you, PJ, what it's like to kind of articulate coming through mm-hmm. a second round of treatment. It's it's phenomenal. I uh, I can't I can't express the gratitude I have for it. But I also felt it was important for me to communicate what was happening to me because obviously I was in and off the radio, Pierce would be in when I was sick, I'd be off for another couple of weeks and then I'd feel I'd have more energy and we'd come back on and do something else. And, you know, it, I, I just felt it helped me to not have to re-explain myself every time. If everyone knew, oh sure, look, she's going through that. Well then, it became an unsaid and un, un, it's something that was taken for granted. Yeah. And like I said on Facebook actually the other day, like I know a number of people who are going through cancer yeah. journeys much longer than mine who would not be public about it, who would be very private about it. And, you know, heroic, heroic in the long-term journey, you know. And But I think it's also a great positive and hopeful thing to take from uh, my experience and the experience of so many people around us, and we hear it through Radio Con as well every year, the incredible advances that there are, thanks to the research and everything that is funded in cancer treatment, that there is hope 
there are always options. If one door closes, there are others that may be open to exploring. And, you know, so many people like myself have had more than one encounter with cancer and have come through. Mm. And, you know, I may have it again, I may not. I kind of have to try and look forward now and be positive and assume you know, a same life. I mean, I'm getting ready to go back to school. I was about to get to that, Ellen Marie. <laughs> I think so the thing that means most of you is going, most to you is going back into the class. <laughs> oh, listen, I'm sure the kids won't believe it. They'll be going, what? She wants? <laughs> but no, I genuinely do. I'm lucky to teach in such a gorgeous school. It's one of four primary schools in Shannon. We are the smallest one. But we have been a two-teacher school for... Uh, Eight, eight years, nine years at this stage and going back in September we are a three teacher school oh I'm just over the moon so um, it's, it's a really exciting time for my school and I'm so thrilled and proud to be heading back in September, I'm going to be having Rana Hain, Rana Do, Rana Three I am job sharing because I'm going to try and keep a balance between my health and my work and take it easy I have the most gorgeous teaching partner, uh, a teacher called Ashling Colton from Cargilline, Ashling Allen. And, you know, I couldn't be happier going back into the classroom. Our pods and bubbles and all that sort of thing, we did it before, we'll do it again. And we couldn't be happier for you, Elmery. Congratulations on the Pride of Cork Award. Look forward to seeing you long before the end of November. <laughs> I can't believe we might have a chance to dress up. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. I, I actually opened the ward. Oh, look, there's those shirts I used to wear on posh nights out. I better mm. iron one. <laughs> hmm. I have other questions to face, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> and we will talk again. Mind yourself. Thanks, PJ. Good Great luck. to hear you so well again. That's Elmarie Maugh. Pride of Cork Award. There's more people getting them. Uh, more of, well, Ted, the Dara Jan McGann is to get one. Uh, I've spoken to Dara Jan many times on the show. Just announced this morning the Cork Penny Dinners are getting a Pride of Cork Award. Sean, the autistic baker whose work we featured on the show, is getting uh, a Pride of Cork Award. Bibi Baskin, who only just retired after many years of entertaining us all, she's getting one. And one I'm particularly delighted to see, and I will be presenting it on the night to his family, uh, a Pride of Cork Award is being posthumously awarded to the late Ted Dunn. And we look forward to that. End of November. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Do you know all the Kelly Harrington stuff over the weekend and there wasn't a dry eye in Ireland yesterday morning. I'd hasten to suggest when she stood to accept her medal and then hear her national anthem and the magnificent scenes in Portland Row a place I know a place if you've ever walked up to Croke Park for a match you've probably walked past Kelly's house that part of Dublin they're the greatest people they're just beautiful salt of the earth decent people decent ordinary dubs beautiful people but in all that talk 
I came across a name, and, and I don't know whether this man is still with us. I'd love to think that he is. There is a coach who plays an enormous part in preparing people like Kelly and in her time, Katie Taylor and others, uh, like the other boxer that won uh, a bronze medal this year, and, and our boxing team prepared by a guy called Saur and Antia. Saur Antia. He's Georgian. And he came to Ireland in 2003 without a word of English because he'd been spotted in his native Georgia by a Cork man. Indeed, a Cork man called Dan O'Connell, who was an international boxing official at the time. And he was visiting a friend of his in Georgia and spotted this guy in a gym and said, I like the look of what he's doing. I like the cut of his jib. So an invitation was arranged. Zorantia came to Ireland, hadn't a word of English, bar hello, and Guinness, I think. But when he sat down to be, he brought a friend with him, obviously, to translate. But when he sat down to be interviewed by the Irish boxing authorities, he said, where I am, there is victory. They were the only few words he had at the interview. Where I am... There is victory. And since that day, he has delivered for Ireland. Others are with him, of course, but he has been part of the delivery for Ireland of nine Olympic medals, including Kelly Harrington's gold and Katie Taylor's gold. Zor and Tia should not be forgotten, but also, and I wonder, and there is a lot of boxing out there, a lot of boxing people in Cork, and it's a great day for the sport. Someone's got to know this. Is Dan O'Connell still around? I hope he is. I'd love to meet him. I'd love to speak with him. He's the guy who brought Zorantia to Ireland. And Zorantia has produced wonderful, wonderful coaching. Just thought I'd throw it out there. 1850-715-996. Where am I going? Where am I going? Yes, there is a bit of a crisis in East Cork, in mental health services in East Cork. The Onacura Centre, which is near Middleton Community Hospital, it's the only long-stay residential and respite mental health facility for adults in East Cork, but it has been decided to close it at the end of October. This is one which has slipped under the radar only for people like Rebecca coming to talk to us. Rebecca, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Thanks for having me on. Delighted. Tell me about the Onacura Centre, because it was a new one on me. Yeah, so the Onacara Centre, as you rightly say, it's um, uh, it's a residential centre in East Cork and it really is um, a centre of excellence. It's quite unique. It's an example of good practice of care in the community. So what it deals with is um, people with long-term uh, mental health issues um, that they're rehabilitated in the community rather than institutionalised as we used to do. Right. And so the HSE does have a policy on rehabilitation of people with severe and enduring mental health illness. And it's a very, very good uh, example of that in practice. So its closure is a bombshell. Yeah. Um, it's been justified on the basis of some defects in the building, but they're not actually very clear. Is it an now, old building, Rebecca? It's, it's not a very old building. It's there about 30 or 40 years. But the thing about it is it's at, it's at the centre of the town, so it's ideal for the residents. If you want to rehabilitate people with mental health issues, the chances are that a lot of them don't drive. 
So, you know, sticking them in the middle of the countryside, it, it, it really isn't the way to go. So its location is unique. Um, the other very disturbing thing is that it has also been decided to redeploy the staff so that the mental health care facility would not continue. So there are 19 uh, residents there at the moment. There's also a daycare centre and up to COVID, there was also a respite centre uh, that's suspended at the moment as far as I know. So nobody seems to know what's going to happen with the residents. Um, some of them have lived there for 30 years. So it's not just a centre, it's a home for them. Yeah. They don't know any other home. They might be in their 50s, in their 60s, etc. Um, like who is a typical resident there? Oh, there's no typical really. Um, it, it's very hard to, to actually pin that down. Right. We have broad, a broad them. range of people, shall we say. A very, very broad range. And, and where will they go after the, after the end of October? Well, seven weeks on, nobody knows. You know? Nice. And then um, the other thing, too, is that, like, if the justification for shutting down the centre is defects in the building, it's very strange that they would be left there until the end of October. It can't be that imminent that, yeah. you know, it requires closure. The other thing, too, is there are some examples of facilities like that that have been rebuilt. So there is land around the centre, you know, if that was necessary. Um, in Shanakil, I think there was a, a centre that was actually rebuilt on the premises. The HSE also owns a hospital just across the road. And I think that they've cleared out some of the front of it. So there is space. There's also a lot of space on that premises. Mm. So the decision to... And with seven weeks to go, has the HSE given any indication as to what it might do? Um, no, because like from from what I understand... Um, inquiries have been made of staff at the centre and they have not been informed of the plans by the HSE. Right. So, like, there, there are a number of bombshells, the closure of the centre, not knowing what's going to happen to the residents, and also the staff being redeployed so that the mental health care facility wouldn't be there anymore. And as I say, it's very strange that the HSE would shoot itself in the foot in that way. Because it's an example, like it gets so much criticism, but it does have examples of really, really good practice. And this is one of them. So, I mean, you know, what the what campaigners are looking for is that the decision be overturned yeah. and that either the centre be rebuilt or refurbished, yeah. but that it be kept in the centre of Middleton. And not that you have a situation of some people being sent to Sarsfield's court, other people being sent up the country. I mean, people have their lives there. It's their home. They have friendships from people who come in and, you know, in the day care centre. They're familiar around um, Middleton. Middleton is quite easy to get around as well. It's easy to get into Cork City. And when we talk about what do we mean about re rehabilitation for people with mental health issues, it can be a whole range of things. I mean, some people might never be able to hold down a job, but they might be able to do a computer course. Yeah. So to have access to that and to be able to walk and to be able to make friends and live life at their fullest, that's really, um, you know, what the centre is providing yeah. at the moment. So the decision to shut it down is basically bizarre. Uh, and I think we, we should be aiming not to go back to a time where people with mental health issues were out of sight and out of mind. They need to be integrated in a community. It's a human rights issue. Have those who's... Or campaigning like yourself, do you have political support? Yes. 
there is a lot of political support. I mean, deputies like Pat Buckley has raised it in the Doyle and uh, the Green Councillor Liam Quaid as well has been very active on the scene. Mm. And when you get, um, when you're sending questions like Councillor Quaid has been doing, for example, mm-hmm. to, does he get answers to his questions? Um, not directly, from what I can see at the moment. Mind you, it is kind of early days. It's seven weeks. Well, I suppose it depends on how you count. But uh, it's seven weeks since the announcement has been made. But there's been no follow-up information from yeah. the HSE. Right. Yeah. I, it must be a very worrying time, not just for the residents, but for their families, their friends. It's, it's very upsetting because, I mean, a lot are elderly as well. Um, you know, a lot of the relatives would be elderly, for example. So they don't know where they're going to be going um, you know, how, how are they going to see them over Christmas? That sort of thing. Um, so, you know, as I say, it's it's bewildering. It's a bombshell. Um, and I think it's a decision that may have been made in haste. And I definitely think that the HSE should look at what they've actually managed to achieve with the centre and okay. to value it and to overturn the decision okay. and to keep the mental health care facility there and to keep the centre in Middleton, and not displace the residents as well that are so important, you know. They're not just chess pieces that you can put into a box and say, well, it doesn't suit us to have this person who's lived there for 30 years any longer, so let's send them to wherever. And you, that's, you know? that's that's not easy or fair to do with people. Uh, Rebecca, thank you very much for that. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six mentioned uh, Sinn Fein TD Pat Buckley. Uh, Rebecca did. Pat, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Can Thanks you can you shed in. more light on this? I mean, it seems that this seems to be the kind of model community based supports community based respite. This seems to be the kind of model that the HSE uh, is supposed to be doing. Oh, absolutely, and I congratulate the lady for coming on and explaining a lot of the issues here. You're right, PJ. We're in about community integration and, you know, starting at the bottoms-up approach. And when we have a system that is working perfectly, the HSE come along and decide, no, no, we have, it, we have excuses to shut it down, and it's going to be absolutely detrimental to the actual service users, their families, the staff, but the whole town and the whole area of East Cork if that, those services go... Now, my issue here is I've been on, I've raised this with the Minister on optical issues, parliamentary questions. I've a number of PQs in at the moment. The problem at the moment is with the HSE is because of this computer hack, we are not getting any replies as such on any parliamentary questions regarding health at the moment. I've also this morning requested a meeting with uh, Minister Donnelly and Minister Mary Butler to discuss the ongoing issues within the Onakura Centre. Why the HSE have not invested money in it, because there has been more than one report on this, 16 and 18, and there's another mental health commission report coming out shortly. The the scariest bit, as Rebecca tells me, Pat, is this is the uh, 9th of August. The the end of October is not that long away, and there's no idea where the various people who use these services may go. Absolutely, and that is absolutely going to be the detriment of the patients and their families. Because from what I'm hearing, we are going to be redeployed, as they say, is in an area that is not accessible by public transport. The service users will not be able to do what they could do in Middleton, which was go out to town, go across the road for a packet of cigarettes or have a coffee and integrate with society. They're going to be isolated. That's going to send them backwards. The staff have just been told they're going to be okay. 
they said initially that there was going to be no job losses. There is, because the catering staff will not have a job after this. I met with the psychiatric nurses union over the weekend and had good frank discussions with them. They're on the same uh, position as ourselves, that that centre has to be kept. Okay. It has to be maintained. Those services have to be maintained. If not, you know you know what happens, BJ. Well, we, we wanted, gone, we wanted to touch base with people today just to get it out there for our listeners. And certainly, it's only a matter of weeks few short weeks. What is it? Three weeks left in August, four weeks in September, four weeks in October to the end of October. So that's 11 weeks before the place closes and, and no idea what's going to happen with the residents of the Onakura Centre. We don't have to draw attention to it today. Thanks uh, to Pat who called in when he heard his name mentioned there by Rebecca. Uh, thank you. 1850-715-996. We'll stay across that. The Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. With localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee backed by Board Gosh Energy. Yeah, voting continuing in the Best of Cork Awards for Cork's 96FM. You just pop along to 96FM.ie. Vote for your favourite. All of the shortlists are there and you just go in and vote for the one that takes your fancy. Like for Best Barber, you might vote Peaky Barbers, or Barber Lane, or Blades with a Z, Mikey's Barbershop, or the Baldy Barber. And if you wanted to look along to, say, the Best Takeaway, you might look at Jackie Lennox's, or KC's, or Murphy's, or Oak Fire Pizza, or the Golden Fry. And all of the categories are there with the shortlists in them. Just go in and cast your vote at 96fm.ie. It's the best of Cork Awards with localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee all backed by Board Gosh Energy. And the awards presented exclusively by Cork's 96FM. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. The Cork Diary. On Cork's 96FM. The 25th Annual Cope Foundation Golf Classic Fundraiser takes place on the 19th and 20th of August at Monkstown Golf Club. With a list of incredible prizes to be won, teams of four are invited to book a place for this year's event. More information can be found at cope-foundation forward slash golf classic. If you have an event you would like mentioned, email corkdiary at 96fm.ie. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Now there's a shortage of new cars. We've just gone into the... Uh, 212 registration period. July obviously starts 1st July 212. Fair number of them around. Not as many as you might have thought but fair number of them around. And this thing about a shortage of new cars on the market it has also led to an increase in the price of second hand cars. So that car that's sitting in the driveway that you were thinking of getting rid of hold on a while because you'll get more money for it than you thought. It's a strange little quirk in the market. Jeremy uh, Herbert uh, from Sunday Independent and of course wheelsforwomen.ie joins me. So, oh, she was there, Fergal. I think she's gone. You might just 
try and get her back for me there. Appreciate that. 1850 Just a statistic to hand that I was hoping to give you at some point. It's COVID-related. I'll just hold on there for for Gillian to be back. But um, the city of Wuhan, I picked this up this morning. The city of Wuhan, of which you may have heard, you may well have heard of Wuhan. Yeah. If you didn't, have you been under the bed for the last year and a half? They are currently testing for the Delta variant. There's been a surge of Delta variant back in Wuhan. And they're testing at the moment. And how many people are they testing in Wuhan for COVID at the moment? I tell you, 11 million people. The Chinese can run out a testing, a rush of testing like nobody's business. 11 million people being tested at the moment in Wuhan for the Delta variant. And across China, you know we're very happy here. We put the six millionth dose of a vaccine into somebody's arm last week and we now have 77% of us fully vaccinated, which is great. Across China, and they have their own vaccine. Is it one or two they have? They definitely have one. They may have a second. They have given out 1.6 billion doses. Billion doses of vaccines in uh, Wuhan, or China, China rather. But Wuhan, back in the news again. Thought we had, I thought that had been sorted, but there you go, such as it is. Right, let me get back to this, uh, to Geraldine Herbert um, from WalesForWomen.ie. So the, the, the car in the drive that's a few years old is actually holding its price or indeed going up a little bit because we can't get our hands on the new ones. Is that right, Geraldine? Good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Yeah, it's a combination of two things. There's a delay with new cars coming into the country, but also with Brexit now, it's much less attractive to import a car because you now have to pay 23% VAT, and in some cases, well, in most cases, 10% customs duty. So that's reducing the number of imports. And then on top of that, PJ, if you remember last year, like in March, when travel completely shut down, there was no rental cars coming onto the market. Now, normally rental car companies buy cars, you know, brand new cars, and sell them. They turn them over quite quickly. Yeah which means that injects a whole dose of new, nearly new cars into the market. That's not happening either. So the two events, I suppose, or the two factors are conspiring now to mean that we have this really unusual situation where used cars are actually going up in value. Yeah. And significantly going up? Um, it depends. I mean, the good news is, I suppose, they're all going up, but it would really depend on, on the make and model. Obviously, the more popular models are going up faster. SUVs, which are very popular, are going up, you know, that bit more. So it really depends on what you have and the age and everything else. But, I mean, they're all actually appreciating at the moment. Yeah. With the 212 cars, what's this chip shortage I hear you mention? Yeah, okay, so the problem here is these are these tiny little chips and they're used in everything from your toaster to your Nintendo Switch to your car. Now, during March 2020, when basically the whole world locked down, car companies closed their factories for a couple of weeks and they cancelled orders for chips. They don't stock these or hold them in, in, in storage. They just use them as they need them. So they cancelled orders. Meanwhile, schools closed, offices closed. There was a demand, a, a huge demand for consumer electronics to support homeschooling and working from home. So the chip manufacturers switched orders from car manufacturers to these more, the more lucrative consumer electronics market. So there was a, a huge shortage then when everything well, got back to normal and car mm. companies reopened their factories. Now, this probably would have you know, resolved itself eventually, um, PJ, but then all other sort of events happened. There was a drought in Taiwan. Now, Taiwan would, have been, would be the country that would supply the most chips to the world. 
There was bad weather in Texas, which also disrupted the production of chips because they have a lot of factories there as well. And then you remember that Suez Canal container ship yes. locked. Now, that literally only docked last week after a four-month delay. That was, had, was carrying a whole load of chips coming from Asia into Europe. So these have all, these factors now have converged to create this very unique situation with cars, um, with new cars. So they're literally ready to come off the production line, but they're missing these chips. So there's huge delays in getting them out and, mm. you know, off the production line and into countries across Europe, in fact, across the world. Was there a glut as well with, because of the, at the turn of the year that such a surge in COVID, was there a bit of a glut? I, I, I speak from some experience here. I was due to change this summer and I was looking to go for a, a 212 and the guy I buy from says, hang on a second, now I have 211s that I'm still trying to get rid of and I'll do your price. And he did. Is there a lot of them around? Yeah, there is, because of course car sales were down significantly last year. Um, and now while they're up this year, they're still not up in comparison to 2019. So, you know, there's still, I suppose, um, the, the pandemic year was like was a bad year for car sales. So the, they would have, at the beginning of the year, they would have brought in the say sort of the normal amount of cars, not anticipating what was going to happen from March onwards. So there is probably, but even at this stage, it's very hard to get anything. Um, the newer a second-hand car you're looking for at the moment, PJ, the harder it is actually to get, and the more you're going to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. I was also watching your interview that you did with, with Tommy on Virgin Media, talking about people coming to the end of a PCP contract. They're in quite an advantage and advantage position at the moment, are they? They're probably in the best position at the moment because remember three years ago nobody would have anticipated this and dealers just project, you know, sort of the average price your car will, will expect to achieve in three years' time. Yeah. So if you're at the end of that, obviously your car is worth far more yeah. than had been previously. And that determines how much you have to pay to turn it over, isn't it? Yeah, so what happens in that situation, if you're going to roll over to another PC, is you can take the equity. So it's whatever the excess is in terms of what it's valued at now and what the dealer reckoned it would be worth. So that, that difference you can take, and that would probably pay for your next deposit on a PCP. So they're in a really strong position. Yeah. So when will this level itself out? Well, the chip shortage is likely to continue till the end of Q1 of next year. So you're talking about March, April. Now, once that starts to resolve, everything else will start to fall into place. So we should, certainly by next summer, we should, you know, I mean, in the end of the day, PJ, what goes up has to come down. But I'd imagine there's at least, you know, the first six months of next year, we're going to have the same issue. Crikey. So to someone who's got that car out in the drive, it's in good nick, but it's five or six years old and it's gone into NCT territory now. What would your your advice be? Hold on to it? Well, you see, the problem is, Peter, most people with a six-year-old car are going to trade up to a three-year-old car. You know, that's what most people sort of do. They get a slightly newer car. The problem there is your six-year-old car has probably not gone up in value quite as much as the three-year-old car. So you're going to lose if you go to change it. So it's very hard to know. As I said, the real winners are people who have a second-hand car and are about to trade up to a new one, or the people at the end of a PCP, or if you're likely to be at the end of a PCP the first six months of next year. But you're not going to gain a lot, if anything, really, if you're going from sort of an older car to a slightly newer car. Mm. Just finally, and in the context of the climate change reports which came out this morning from the UN, where are we with regard to electrics on Irish roads? Well, we're doing really well at the moment. If you consider, PJ, there was nearly 2,000 sold in the month of July this year in comparison to about 700 the year before. And there's been about, I think it's 6,200 have been sold so far. So between battery electric um, cars and plug-in electrics, they're now making up 14% of the market. Now that's huge because that was less than 1% about 2016. Wow. So Mm. that would include the, the the full electric 
the so-called plug-in hybrid and the actual hybrid that you never have to plug no, into anything. That, that's not including the hybrid. If you throw the hybrid in there, um, instead you get over 30%. Yeah. You see more and more hybrids out there now. A huge number of hybrids, but it's amazing how the, the hybrid number is actually falling. That was about 18% last year in, right. in terms of market share. That's gone down to about 16%, and what we see is a much higher increase in electrics and plug-in hybrids. Yeah. So the combined market share is about 31%, which, as we said before, PJ, that's one in three buyers going yeah. into a car showroom are no longer opting for petrol and diesel. Because the hybrids are more attractive to someone on the basis that, well, you never have to charge the thing. It, it does all that itself. But yeah. but but that's kind of only a halfway to doing the right thing. It's just... Well, it's, I mean, you can see the reassurance of it. You know, people are making the, the kind of, you know, the step towards the environmentally, you know, better choice, but they don't have to change their lifestyle and they don't have to worry about running out. So, I mean, it is, it's a reassuring move for a lot of people. And I, I think for some people, you know, the only one they can do at the moment, they can't see themselves, you know, actually plugging in a car and having to charge it and having to worry about all of that. But we see more and more people, though, making the move towards pure electric. Okay. All right. Thanks. Always good to talk with you. That's Geraldine Herbert, uh, writes motoring for the Sunday Indo, and her web is wheelsforwomen.ie. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. The facts on vaccines from Cork's 96FM. So what difference have vaccine rollouts made in the past? In the 1700s, Edward Jenner invented the world's first vaccine therapy against smallpox. Scientific advances in the first half of the 20th century led to an explosion of vaccines that protected against whooping cough, diphtheria, tetanus, influenza, polio, measles, mumps, and rubella. In 1980, the world was declared smallpox-free, nearly 200 years after Edward Jenner's initial vaccine treatment. For information on COVID-19 vaccines, visit the HSE website. Helping you through COVID, Cork's 96FM. Here's an email we got this morning, uh, early, and we just said I'd read it to you for what you think it's worth. I've actually seen a hotel in Cork that had the solution to this. And I thought, it'd be quite easy to do it in most places, I guess. But anyway, name withheld for obvious reasons. Hi, we're on our staycation honeymoon this week, and we've stayed in a hotel. We had a wonderful experience with the staff, but I left on a sour note. I had an emergency at about half past 12 last night and required female products. As accommodating as the night porter was, there was absolutely no sanitary towels or no tampons available in the hotel. My husband, on a honeymoon, had to go to the nearest shop to get me some pads. I feel that in a four-star hotel, or any hotel, there should be readily available access to female sanitary products. When I brought this to the manager's attention, I found he didn't take the issue seriously saying that he'd never encountered the issue before and that he assumed we bring these things with us. It was a very upsetting experience for our second night at the hotel and I wouldn't have stayed for the second night if I'd known that the attention to detail was this lacking. It's a very basic need and should be provided without question or without judgment. I felt exposed and judged. I wouldn't like that to happen to any woman again. So please supply tampons and sanitary towels to the female guests in hotels. I suppose I'm asking hotels to have some knowledge and some respect for a large demographic of your customers. 
Now, as I read that this morning, I thought of one hotel in Cork, which shall remain nameless, where there is a tiny little shop near the reception area. If you know it, you know it. A tiny little shop near the reception area, and they have essentials like a few batteries, bottles of water, adapters and stuff, and they have a little box of crisps and stuff, and they have a little box of those products. But I think as well, the kind of stuff that they put into the bathrooms in a hotel room, like soap and shower gel and shampoo and shower hair nets and all that. Wouldn't hurt them, would it? To put one or two of these things into a little packet inside the, the bathroom. Just coming back to a few things. The giving your child space, talking to uh, Eileen earlier on this morning from jumpstartyourconfidence.ie about you know, giving your child space, letting them develop into their own person rather than turning into a mini you or a mini me. The Cork Kaipu. I swear to God, I will find out who you are one of these days. The Cork Kaipu says the hardest part of being a parent is trying to discipline yourself out of your child. I assume you mean your bad habits. Yes, you're not wrong. It is. <laughs> They're, if you see them doing exactly what you did, and he goes, no, no, that, yeah, gotcha. Good point, good point. 1850-715-996 on... Uh, Elmery, and we had Elmery on earlier on, talking about her 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 Pride of Cork Award, which should be given at the end of November, and we're delighted for that. Presented by Cork Civic Life, Maeve says Elmery is a queen. What she has done for the arts in Cork is immeasurable, uh, especially in the past year and a half. I worked in the arts full time, and I put on her show every Sunday. It gives me hope. She has time for everyone, and I've been in with her being interviewed. And it's incredible how she makes you feel relaxed, valued and special. Love the way herself and Connor laugh through the show while all the time getting the information in. It's a must for Sunday morning listening. Better than any medicine. I have to tell her she so deserves this and so happy she's being recognised, says Maeve. Okay. On yesterday's victory, now, as I said, I, my heart wasn't worth it after the match yesterday. Such a great, such a great game of hurling, isn't it? I mean, entertainment par excellence on the pitch at Croke Park yesterday, even if we did put our hearts crossways a couple of times. John says, though, I don't know if you're going to do any coverage on this story. There was another All-Ireland semi in Dublin yesterday. Cork Harlequins knocked out Irish cricket royalty Merion in the All-Ireland T20 semi-final. I believe the first Munster or Cork club to get to an All-Ireland final on the 22nd. Cricketing paupers in Cork a family club, average age 21. Majority of the team, homegrown, played there since 2010-2011 for Harlequins. None of them professionals, some of them from refugee background. The team they beat yesterday, Merrigan, a paid players, internationals and former internationals. Good news, thank you for that, John. Thank you. Staying with sport, and she's back in Cork with her feet firmly back on the ground, uh, our Olympic gymnast, who we spoke to a couple of weeks ago before she headed off. Meg Ryan, good morning, Meg. Good morning, how are you? Good, good, good. Well, did it, did, 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 did it live up to your expectations? What kind of an occasion was it? What was the experience oh, like? Definitely, the experience is amazing. If, if anything, I would say um, it ex- exceeded my expectations. So, um, 
yeah, I, I loved I loved every bit of it, and I was just soaking in. So um, I really enjoyed it. I was trying to watch as much of the gymnastics as I could while I was off, but we were only able to see what one or two different channels at a time, or yeah. one or two different feeds at a time. So I didn't actually see your your event, but mm-hmm. but the, 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 the standard this year, Meg, it just keeps going up. It does, yeah. Like it goes up every year, and I think you could see even. You know, with the team final, like USA kind of came second. And I think, you know, I wouldn't say it's even that they've gone down. I think it's just that the standard in general has gone up so much. And um, it makes for definitely an exciting viewing because, you know, everyone has gotten better. And it's just, you know, that kind of fight for the gold and for the, all the different medals. So um, it definitely makes it more entertaining. But, yeah, the standard is has definitely gone way up. In just the when year. you think they can't get any better with something, they get better at it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Has yeah. it fired on your admission or ambitions for the future? Um, definitely. I definitely like don't usually try to think too far ahead. I like to take it one step at a time. So, uh, at the moment, I was just focusing on the World Championships, which are in October, and I knew that those would be coming up kind of, mm. you know, soon after the Olympics. So, where were, uh, where were they on, Meg? They're actually on in Tokyo as well. Oh, crikey. Yeah, right. yeah. So, so I think they were actually meant to be there anyway when the, the Olympics were meant to be on in 2020. But obviously now that the Olympics are on in 2021, they're, they're still there. And, and the same arena and around. everything, yeah? I, I'm i actually not too sure. Maybe maybe not, but um, they're definitely on in Tokyo anyway. Yeah, so you're heading back for them? Um, hopefully. That's, that's the plan at the moment anyway. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Do you know who we were watching as well? And I was gutted for the lad, Reese McLenaghan. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I was um, gutted for him as well. I was obviously there when yeah. he was competing and cheering him on. But, um, um, you know, he had a great reaction afterwards. He was, you know, the only took the brilliant. positives out of it. And um, I think he's focusing on, on the next the next thing there as well. So, yeah. hopefully. And do you know the big story as well was uh, Simone Biles? I mean, just... Like how good is that girl? Like, can, do you do you know what the the the, the twisties are? The, this this thing that seems you've gotten a, it's a block for her and she has to mind herself. Do you know what that is, Meg? Um, yeah, definitely. Like, I think it happens. You know, every gymnast at some stage in their life. Like, I think it's it's just a thing where um, every time she's doing a scale, like a big a big scale, and she's in the air, she's getting kind of lost in the air, and she. She doesn't know where she is, right. you know, or, or kind of, she kind of has no concept of where she is in the air. So, you know, anything could happen when she's coming down. She doesn't yes. know, you know, if she's, how she's going to land. So it's definitely something that's, that's really dangerous. And I think, you know, it's yeah. definitely the right decision for her. Because you often would imagine the concentrate, take something like, like the beam. Like, yeah. do you know, I mean, you, how, how wide is that thing? Three and a half inches? I, yeah, I think it's, it's about four inches. <laughs> if you don't know where you are, you could do yourself a serious injury coming down. Yeah, definitely, and she obviously competed the beam in the end. I think she did. She was brilliant on it. Yeah, the, yeah, was the you know better one for her to compete. I think yeah. just um, she wouldn't be as high up w- in the air. Would you like say, Meg, that she did? Balls, would you say that she did the right thing when she wasn't? She 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 knew that this lasted twisties had hit her. Did she do the right thing in backing back? Yeah, I think she she definitely did. Like it was obviously the worst timing for something like that to happen. So I couldn't imagine like what she was kind of going through out there, but um, I think a lot of people might have thought that you know she just kind of pulled out because the the pressure and stuff. But that I know that yeah. was 
probably a danger, you know. So I think she definitely made the right decision for her own safety to, to pull out. Well, I saw the opening vault and I said, well, I had seen it on, I didn't see it live, I saw it on record. That's not Simone. Yeah, exactly. That's I, not I her. I was there in the crowd watching that as well. And I think everyone was just kind of in yeah. shock. So. I forgot that. You, you, were, you were, like, when you saw that vault, you knew yeah. straight away that's not Simone Wells. Yeah, like she, we actually um, saw like the warm ups as well, and she she actually did the same thing in her in her warm up, and then she did it in the competition vault as well. So I think everyone kind of knew something wasn't right there if she was if she's done it twice in a row. You know, it wasn't just a, a one one time kind of accident. So um, you could definitely tell something something yeah. big was off. Yeah, I know when she's so good and that vault was so off. I was watching now. That's 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 not that's not the Simone that we know. I know you said that the World Championship are the first hurdle now, but would you like to try again in Paris? Um, I, I'll definitely have to see how it goes, and sure, you know, if, if I could, I, I probably would. So we'll we'll see how how everything goes. Yeah, well, you did great, and delighted, and and proud of you um, <laughs> that you're Thank out you. there. Quick question: Were you up at six o'clock yesterday morning? Um, I was not up at six o'clock, but I did. I did watch um, Kelly's match. If that's what you're, yes, that's what, what I you're going to ask. And she, she was amazing. I was so happy for her and getting her medal. Like it was so well deserved. So yeah. it was a good. It was a good Olympics for her. The first time I think since 1932 we won gold in two different sports. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. It's such an achievement. So she should be really proud, definitely, of that. Yeah. As should as should you of getting there yeah. and competing, and best of luck when the world championships come around. And let's hope you'll be there. And uh, oh, you've got you. many many years of, of of competition ahead of you. Meg Ryan, our Olympic gymnast from Douglas in Cork, uh, I was delighted to have a chat with her about the Simone Biles thing. I had been a huge fan of Simone, and the feeds of the different channels, the different sports, were hard to keep an eye on. Um, until I got back home and I had Eurosport. I didn't have Eurosport on my holidays and Eurosport had eight or nine, diff- ten different channels. So, but I remember seeing that first vault that Simone Biles did and that is not, she's not right. Something isn't right with that kid. And sure, we all know what happened then. And she did the right thing by pulling back. Absolutely the right thing by pulling back. 1850 Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. That's it for this morning. Program edited by Fergal Barry, produced and researched by Katie O'Keefe. And we'll see you tomorrow, just after nine. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. 
source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 